Well, we're again in continuing our study of the book of James, and we have made our way to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I've titled my sermon this morning, All or Nothing? Question mark. All or Nothing? Question mark. In your bulletin, it probably says uh, the proposition is that James gives three instructions to avoid becoming a friend of the world and an enemy to God. Of God, I want to change that. That word being or becoming, change that to being. Uh, as I thought and prayed through it this morning, I realized that it makes more sense that we would say uh, James is giving three instructions to avoid being a friend of the world and an enemy to God or of God. And in, in order to do, to do that, you must assess your standing, acknowledge the struggle, and admit the solution. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, read the passage and get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. We praise you that you have brought us all together. Father, may we proclaim your, your name this morning. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word that you would be present here. We know that you will. Father, I pray for those listening that you would give them uh, a clear uh, mind to be able to hear and receive your word and a heart that's soft and, uh, again, ready to receive the implanted word that's able to save us. Father, I pray for me that I, my own heart, that I have been prepared this week and that I would... Uh, would just preach your word as that I would uh, decrease that you might increase that I would not be here as a glory stealer Lord that I would be pointing to you and you alone in Christ's name amen let me read the passage verses 1 through 10 verses 1 through 10 chapter 4 James writes what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you it is not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do, and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he he will exalt you. Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman had in his church a professor of mathematics whose life had been ruined by sin. He had come to Christ through Chapman's preaching. On Sunday, as he was on one Sunday as he was speaking to a group of men, Chapman told them. Chapman told them, as Psalm 103.12 declares, that God removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Turning to the professor, Dr. Chapman said, Professor, that is a mathematical proposition for you. How far is the distance from east to west? The professor, being a mathematics genius, reached for his pencil and notebook to make the calculation. Then he suddenly stopped and he burst into tears. And facing the group said, Men, you can't measure it. For if you put your stake here, 
and east be ahead of you and west behind you, you can go around the world and come back to your stake and east will still be ahead of you and west still behind you. The distance is immeasurable and thank God, he cried, that is where my sins have gone. Beloved, we don't need advanced mathematics to realize that when we are saved, God completely removes our sin from us. In saving us, He takes us from a state of hostility toward Him to a place of friendship. From friendship with the world to friendship with God. This professor of mathematics went through a great transformation. He had been a friend of the world and an enemy of God, but God had saved him by His grace. But how did this happen? I believe the answer lies in this passage before us and is the very essence of the gospel. As I said earlier in this passage, James gives three instructions to avoid being a friend of the world and an enemy of God. First point, you must assess your standing. James writes, you adulteresses. As is normal for him, James starts this section with an address to his readers. In most places of the letter, James addresses them as his brethren. And in several places, he even uses the more affectionate, my beloved brethren. As we have seen in our study, James is very pastoral and is addressed to his readers. It makes sense because as their pastor, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, James would have dearly loved these people. He would have pastored them and been amongst them. He would have felt a special connection to them. So the current address, uh, you adulteresses, uh, represents an abrupt departure from this normal address. Now this word, just a little bit of Greek here, this word is feminine. And and it could be interpreted as, as speaking to adulterous women or even prostitutes. But nothing in the context suggests this. Actually, his address seems to be an allusion to the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament prophetic book books where the prophets frequently compare the relationship between Yahweh and His people to a marriage relationship. One example would be Isaiah 54, 5, where Isaiah writes, For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. You see, Isaiah refers to God as being the husband of Israel. But when Israel's idolatry threatens her relationship with the Lord, Jeremiah accuses her of committing adultery. In Jeremiah 3.20, it says, Surely as the treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And in the book of Hosea, the imagery of Israel as the adulteress reaches its high point. In Hosea, the the Lord commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. Shocking, right? In Hosea 1-2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. God does this with Hosea to highlight the nation's idolatry her spiritual adultery. This revelation is painful, yet it is true. They have been unfaithful with God or to God, and they have pursued the gods of other nations. Israel has been unfaithful to Him and has gone after other lovers. This imagery of adultery is picked up by Jesus in the New Testament. He said to those who rejected Him, who clearly rejected Him, He said said this in Matthew 12 and in Matthew 16, He called them an evil and adulterous generation. Clearly James, I, I believe, picks up on this imagery when he calls some of his readers adulteresses. This language is one of the reasons that I believe that James is addressing unbelievers who have attached themselves to the church. 
These people have claimed allegiance to Christ, but their lives indicate something completely different than this claim. They had a dead faith. They were not like Abraham, who had a true faith that he lived out. They were not even like Rahab. They had a a dead faith and were unfaithful to God. They were adulteresses. Now, isn't that amazing that Rahab, the harlot, is used as an example for what they should be and what they're not. They were not faithful to Christ. They chased after their pleasures, causing great conflict in the church. James says to them, Do you not know? Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? James says, Do you not know? Are are you not keenly aware? In other words, he's saying, don't say that I didn't warn you. Don't say that I didn't warn you, that you can't have friendship with the world. This friendship, it comes from the word uh, philia, uh, a derivative of, of the Greek word phileo. Which means to have a special interest in someone. Uh, a focus on, on close association, to have an affection for. It's often just translated love. There's also the word that it's in the same group, which means friend. It is where we get the word Philadelphia, which means city of brotherly love. It's it's the only time this form of the word is used in the New Testament. Agapao, which I'm sure many of you have heard. Agapao is the word for love used throughout Scripture. And and phileo has a very close meaning. If there's any distinction between the two, it seems to be that agapao, with agapao, there's a stronger volitional drive. And with phileo, there's a stronger emotional drive. Said another way, with agapao, a person sets his love on someone, while with phileo, they are driven by their emotion. Phileo gives us the word kiss. Now, I go through all of this. I don't usually go through the Greek. I, this is a little bit of a departure for me. But I go through all this because I want you to understand that James is referring to an affection for the world or even an emotional attachment to the world. In other words, he's describing a strong affection. They have a, a deep desire for the world and all that it stands for. Now this idea of friendship, and we need to understand the ancient view of friendship in light of the seriousness of, seriousness of the charge that James is making. Uh, we speak rather casually of friends in our day. But in, in James's world, friendship involved a sharing of all things. In unity, both spiritual and physical. These people had a desire then to follow the world and its ways more than they wanted to follow Christ. Now this idea of world refers to the man-centered, Satan-directed system which is hostile to God, Christ, and the Christian. This, this, term, this term is not referring to the earth in a physical sense. It's talking about the spiritual reality and, and of the lostness and ungodliness of the system in which we live. The system is satanic, and it's man-centered, and it's hostile to God. And it encompasses the values of the world, the ethics of the world along with the morals of this world. You, we see it all around us. All you have to do is look at the news. Look, look at your uh, Facebook feed. You see it all around us. You see the, the ethics and the morals of this world. And you see that it's antagonistic to God. The objective of this world is, to glory, uh, glory of, is the glory of self. The fulfillment of pleasure, self-indulgement, and indulgence and self-satisfaction. And that connects, right? In chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source your pleasures. You see, the world hates everything about God. And they hate everything about His truth. Yet... They strip the truth of its power and use it to their advantage. 
They speak about truth, but they don't want anything to do with the God of all truth. Have you noticed that? They speak about the truth, but they don't want anything to do with the God who is truth. Years ago, I was dealing with an issue with two employees that worked for me who were fighting. The employee knew that I was a Christian, and, and she said in her defense, well, I was just following the Bible. You know, I was treating her the same way she treated me. <laughs> of course, she was twisting Scripture for her own interests. You know, my favorite uh, is, is that you aren't to judge me. That's what the Bible says. Don't judge me. Of course, most people are more sophisticated in twisting the truth. But you get the point. The world, the world uses what might seem like truth to their own advantage. You see, they, they change it to their own advantage. Why do you think there's so many false religions in the world? Because false teachers feed their appetite for money, power, and sex by duping weak people. The Mormon organization forces their members to tie 10% and are one of the richest religious organizations on earth. They believe this shows the blessing from God, yet it is a perversion. Ultimately, they use their money to coerce people to stay. It's perverted. But they're just part of a worldly system that is diametrically opposed to God. The world ultimately hates everything about him and shakes its fists at the Creator. And this, this, this is a, a huge problem because James says that friendship with the world, friendship is hostility to God or toward God. James says to embrace the world and its system is hostility toward him. It's hard to get around the meaning of this term, hostility. It's an enmity to, to him. It's a personal hostility, a personal hatred. It's a very strong word. It's a, it could be translated enemy. James, the people James has in mind are the ones who have embraced the world and are hostile to God. They are the enemies of God, yet they have slipped into the church probably for personal advantage. They hate God but they love the pleasures they derive from the people of God. Now I want to remind you from last week that there, I believe that there are three categories of people that James is addressing here in this letter. There are the true believers who are downtrodden and they're experiencing great trials. These are the people that James seeks to encourage. He reminds them of the, the great promises of God and tells them to persevere because God will ultimately win the war. God wins. God wins, no matter how grim it looks today. I hope you know that. I hope you are aware that God wins. And, and, and I hope that, it, that you're on His side so that you will, in Him, uh, find victory. There's also those on the fence, just as a, I'm sure there are people here on the fence today. And from a human perspective, they could go either way. They're teetering. These are the ones that James seeks to turn from their sin to serve a living and true God. Or the living and true God. If they continue in their sin, they will remain enemies of God. But if they repent, they will become friends of God. You see, the pull of the world is very strong on these people. They, they are buying into worldly wisdom and they want to be teachers and leaders in the church. They think that they have found a better way, having carefully avoided the pain and suffering associated with following Christ. Did you get that? They think that they found a better way. Because, because they've avoided, they've carefully avoided any pain and suffering associated with following Christ. They have experienced comfort and pleasure that they've derived from this world, and they don't want to give it up. Because that means that they would have to experience great pain. These are the ones that are teetering. And then there are those who I believe have fully embraced the world. They are friends of this world. They are enemies of God. They are using the church as an advantage to themselves to feed their own pleasures. They have bought into worldly wisdom and there's, there's a probability that they're also teachers and leaders. They have, they have put themselves in that position. Paul said in Acts 20 that false teachers would arise among you. That's later on. But we already see that at work here in James. 
I believe they're using their position to spin a web of, of deception. And see, second two groups are associated with the church that seem to be causing great conflict and pain within the church. They're going after, they, they, they are, James is condemning them for their pursuit of comfort and pleasure, which is causing great pain to the true brethren. Now, I want to be very clear. Nowhere in Scripture does it refer to a believer as a friend of this world. Because friends of this world make themselves to be enemies of God. Let me give you a few examples of what the Bible has to say about the enemies or about the identity of the enemies of God. Romans 5, if you want to turn there. Five eight, but God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Look at verse ten. For if while we were what enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Before we were saved, beloved, we were enemies of God. There is no exception. You were an enemy of God before you turned to him. And if you haven't turned to him, you are an enemy of God today. Take a look at Romans 8. Starting in verse 5, for those who, who are, according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are, according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile. Hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is, for it is not even, this is, get this, not even able to do so. Paul is saying that those with the mind set on the flesh are hostile to God. They are enemies of God. Logically, then, the enemy of God is an unbeliever. Look at Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Verse 18. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are what? Enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is what? Destruction. Whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on what? Earthly things. We could keep going with this, but clearly the enemy of God is, a, is an unbeliever. James is saying that those who embrace the world with all its supposed comforts and pleasures are unbelievers. They are not friends of God. They are friends of this world. Remember the discussion we had in James 2, where James offered Abraham or, or put him up as an example of true faith. James said that his work showed that he had true faith in God. He was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac according to God's command. He was willing to do whatever it took, whatever to, it, it, whatever to please God, even if it meant losing his promise, the promised son. Do you remember what James said Abraham was called? James 2.23. And he was called the friend of God. Clearly, James delineates then between the enemy of God who is a friend of the world and the friend of God who is willing to give up everything for God. 
Really, this should remind us of John 15, right? John 15, verse 12. You don't have to turn there, just listen. This is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for what? His friends. Listen to this, though. Verse 14. You are my friends... If you do what? If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may what? He may give it to you. So we name this point, assess, assess, you must assess your standing. Where do you stand? Do you love the world and all that is in it? You know, the love of the world can be subtle. The world has so much to offer. And we live in a culture that, that allows us to have it both ways. The culture does, not God, but the culture does. At least for now. The world beckons. Just take a little bite. Just a little. It won't hurt you. God won't care if you compromise in this one little area. There are a myriad of ways that we can compromise, beloved. Maybe it's the man who looks at pornography. It's harmless, right? Or the man who flirts with the woman down the hall at work. It's no big deal, right? Or it's the woman who thinks that the other man is more interesting than her husband. Maybe he shows her a little more attention. Every woman deserves to be looked at in that way, right? Or it's the teenager who looks at alcohol and drugs and says, It's just one drink. It's just, I'm just going to give it a try. I, I'll do this, but I'll never do that. It's not that destructive, right? Or maybe it's the young girl who says, you know, I'll just give in to my, my boyfriend to please him. It's okay. What's the harm in it? Everyone's doing it, right? Or maybe outwardly you look good. You've carefully built a life that looks great on the outside. You don't drink, you don't smoke. You wouldn't dream of it. You pray, you read your Bible, you serve in your church, you make sure everyone knows how good you are. But inwardly you're a fraud and you know it. Your heart is far from God. You secretly love the world and you secretly indulge in it. James's readers were saying, what's the harm in enjoying these pleasures, these comforts? Why should I have to suffer? Why should I have to suffer for Christ? We only have to compromise in this one area. But the problem is it's never that one thing. Compromise always leads to the call for more compromise. Deception always calls for, the, for more deception. I want you to, I'm not trying to shame you here. I know that all of us can struggle. right? We can all fall in, in, into sin. I understand it's a battle. But it's a battle we have to fight. It's a battle that has to be fought. The world is heavy upon us. It's, it's beckoning to us. And, and, and many times, even the most godly among us fall prey to it. I told you about the pastor a few weeks ago who announced that he had committed adultery. Preached at the Shepherds Conference in February. And announced that he, that he committed adultery. And my heart is just, I don't understand. Yet I know that, that sin is deceptive. Assess your standing. Assess your standing. Which brings us to our second point acknowledge the struggle. Acknowledge the struggle. James writes, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Here, James doubles down on this assertion. You cannot be a friend of the world without making yourself an enemy of God. It's an impossibility. Listen to our Lord's words. Matthew 6.24 No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So it seems that we're at an impasse, right? The world beckons us, the world beckons me, yet making myself a friend of the world is deadly. Now I want to draw your attention to something here. The word translated wish has the idea of desire. A desire to have, a desire to experience something. It has the implication of planning uh, accordingly. In other words, the one planning to experience the pleasures of this world makes himself an enemy of God. I also want to draw your attention to this idea of making yourself. This is volitional. This is not speaking of of the one who sometimes fails because we can all fail. This is speaking of a, a decision that we make to follow after the world. It's a compromise that we make. We say, I'm going to compromise in this area and I'm going to continue going and I'm not going to battle in this area. When we make that decision, we're completely responsible for the implications of that decision. We have no excuses, excuses because there are no excuses. We won't be able to stand in judgment before God and beg our way out of it. I hope you understand that. We must acknowledge then the struggle. We must acknowledge the struggle. James certainly understands the struggle because then he says, or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Now, this is certainly the most difficult verse to translate and interpret in James's letter. It may be even the most difficult in the New Testament. But with the difficulty, I believe, comes great fruit. If we're willing to study. Just this week, we posted an article to to Facebook which told of the story of a young student who desired to study insects. His prof put him in a room by himself to study a fish. Which he did for, for days as the old prof prodded him to keep looking deeper and deeper. And as he was pushed, he began to make many wonderful discoveries about the fish. And this, the fruit of that exercise was a, deep, uh, a lifetime of deep observation which yielded a great treasure. The article then is a great example of studying Scripture. The proper study of Scripture. And I believe it's the reason why we uh, preach sequentially through the, the Bible. We preach verse by verse, phrase by phrase. We observe more as we continue to go through, right? As we, as we regurgitate it, as we think through it, as we teach it, as we talk about it. And, and we contend then, if we, if, we don't, if we don't go verse by verse, we contend to skip things. We contend to skim over those difficult passages. You know, I, wouldn't, I would never helicopter into this passage. Right? I mean, because it, it's too hard to understand. But I'm forced to, to, to preach it, right? I'm forced to come to you this morning and tell you what it means or what I think it means. True expository preaching then forces us to deal with each word and each phrase. Now, now here, the, the first verse that here starts innocuously, but it, it introduces a great difficulty. James says, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, or the Scripture is in vain? In other words, you see, you see the Scripture, do you believe it has no value? Now, the, the, here's, the, here's the issue. He, he's bringing up Scripture, and, and it's as if he's going to quote Scripture. And of course, the answer to his question is no, it's not in vain. But then he follows up by saying this. In the NAS, New American Standard, it says, He jealously desires the spirit which he made, has made to dwell in us. The difficulty of this is that it, we don't find this exact wording in the Bible. The second difficulty is that the grammar is very difficult to understand, translate, and interpret. 
Now, I don't want to lose you all in the weeds, but I do want to work through some of the difficulty, difficulty here and show you, hopefully show you, why I land where I do. And I hope to show you that there's great treasure here. Now, let me just draw your attention to the, to the difficulties by showing various translations of this verse. The NAS, as I said, it's translated, translates this verse, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. The Net Bible, which is a, a, really a, a fantastic translation, says this, the spirit, of, the spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning. The King James Version says this, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth with envy. I'm glad I don't have to preach the King James. My, my lips don't move very well. The new RSV says this, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And the English Standard Version says this, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Now ultimately, you could boil this down to two major alternatives. There's some extra stuff, but the two major alternatives. Either James is referring to God's jealousy for His people, or James is referring to the human tendency to be envious. The spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Now, I don't think that I can argue directly from this verse which way to go. But I think that the context helps us understand what James is saying. Verse 5, I believe, clearly substantiates a point made in verse 4 which focuses on spirit, the spiritual adultery that James's people or James's readers are committing by following the world in distinction to the only true spouse, the Lord Jesus. Verse 4 reminds us that, that God desires His people to be holy and unreservedly His. All or nothing, right? This has been true from the beginning. Verse 4 then provides a stern warning against any flirtation with the attitudes and the values of this world. Therefore, I take the interpretation that it's God's jealousy that's in view here. That God is the one who's jealous. And I believe the Spirit referred to here is not the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of life or the breath of life which God has given us. We see that in Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Therefore, this phrase reminds us that God has a claim on us by virtue of his work in our lives. He created us, and he is jealous for us. Now, I think the progression of this passage helps us understand what James is saying. Let me sum it up in one long sentence. <coughs> Let me sum it up. You can't be a friend of this world and be a friend of God at the same time because God won't play second fiddle to anyone or anything in your life. Let me say that again. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time because God won't play second fiddle to anyone or anything in your life. In other words, it's all or nothing. And really, this is one of the great difficulties of this verse. How can God be jealous and righteous at the same time? Ultimately, God is jealous for His own glory since He is the greatest thing in existence and His glory must be the ultimate purpose of everything that He has created. That's the point. Westminster Shorter Catechism says this about man's chief end or purpose. Man's chief, chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Let me give you a few verses to substantiate this. Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a... Jealous God. You should, Exodus thirty four fourteen. You shall not worship any other God for the Lord who is whose name is 
Jealous is a jealous God. Zechariah 8.2 Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. You see, God is a jealous God and He will not give His glory to another. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor praise to graven images. Or my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48.11 For my own sake, for my own, for my own sake, I will act, for how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. So even though James does not quote a single scripture, you get that? He doesn't quote a, we can't go look at a single scripture. He does, he does give an undeniable theme of scripture that God will not give his glory to any other. He is a jealous God. He is, a, he is jealous for the spirit He has made to dwell in us. He will not share with another. He wants your total allegiance. He wants it all. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. But if we're totally honest with ourselves, we realize that this is a huge struggle. Actually, it's more than a struggle. It's impossible for us. Mark 10 Mark 10, 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, at Jesus' words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know how hard that is? It's impossible. It's impossible. I don't take the view that this is a, a gate in Jerusalem. I take the view that he's speaking of a needle and the eye of a needle and a camel passing through it. It's impossible. Because then they say, in 1026, they, they were even more astonished. They thought it was hard before. And, and Jesus is saying this. And, then, and they ask Him, then who can be saved? Who? Who can do these things? But Jesus, looking at them, said, this is Mark 10:27. With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. In other words, there is a way. There is a way. You see, you have to assess your standing and you have to acknowledge the struggle, but there is a way. You just have to admit the solution. Admit the solution. That's our third point, verse 6. But He gives a greater grace. See the progression there? You see the progression? You see what's going on there? God is a jealous God who wants it all. You can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It's impossible. But God gives a greater grace. As great as the struggle is, God's grace is, is greater. By God's grace, you really can resist the world. By God's grace, you really can suffer for Christ's sake. Philippians 1.29, Paul writes, For to you it has been granted to, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. The word translated has been granted is grace gifted. Salvation and suffering is a grace gift. These words are parallel to the words of Paul in Ephesians 2. I'm sorry, Ephesians 1. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and, the Father, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us as adoption, as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Listen to verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us and the Beloved. Now I want you to understand that that word, or the freely bestowed, is actually He graced us. He, he, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely graced us. He poured out His grace upon us. And he goes on, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His 
grace. It's all His grace. It's all His grace. Ephesians 2.1, he says, You were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which you formerly walked according to the course of what? This world. You were formerly friends of the world. Some of you still are. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God. The greatest two words in Scripture. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love, which He loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. And Paul can't even contain himself. He, he burst out, by grace you have been saved. The main verb here is, in verse 6, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God. It's all His work. It's all Him. God unilaterally saves by His grace. You know what unilaterally means? It means He didn't join with anyone. He just went and did it. He does it all of His own. He chooses to save us despite of who we are and what we've done. I don't care what you've done... You are not beyond salvation. You are not beyond the grace of God. Jerry Bridges says this, Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And our best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. End quote. saves us on the, by His grace, not on the basis of merit. He saves us and He makes us His friend. We become a, a friend of God. You ask, what is grace? Grace is the very opposite of merit. H.A. Ironside says this, Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who deserved the very opposite. Oswald Chambers says this about grace. Eternal life is not a gift from God. Eternal life is the gift of God. The energy and power which was so very evident in Jesus will be exhibited in us by an act of the absolute sovereign grace of God. Once we have been made that complete and effective once we have made that complete and effective decision about sin, we have to keep letting go and slowly but surely the great full of full life of God will invade us, penetrating every part. Speaking of sanctification there, that grace not only saves you, but it keeps you saved and sanctifies you. John Piper says this about God's grace. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. End quote. Grace is undeserved and more powerful than simply simple than simple leniency. Grace not only saves but keeps us saved. It not only keeps us saved but penetrates every aspect of our lives, making it impossible to be a friend of the world. James goes on to say, therefore it It says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is quoted from Proverbs 3.34. So how do we appropriate God's grace? He gives us a clue here. It is undeserved. There is no amount of work that we can do to gain His favor. It is unmerited. But it says, James says that God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to those who believe they deserve God's favor. Somehow... They have convinced themselves then that they are special and deserve to be saved. saved. But I can't help but wonder if hell's flames will be hotter for those who have heard the truth and have hardened their hearts against, against it, thinking they warrant salvation by their own works. God gives grace to what? 
to the humble. To those who understand their sinfulness and position before a holy God. It's, it's a state of brokenness before a holy creator, understanding that we deserve his wrath. Jesus taught, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, which could be translated humble, for they shall inherit the earth. So the answer then is to humble yourself before God. You don't deserve His favor, yet He freely gives to those who humble themselves under His mighty hand. I believe Martin Lloyd-Jones captures this. It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when, when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God and, Christ, and Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. End quote. Beloved, you are saved by the grace of God. You have not merited anything you have done. And not only does grace, uh, the, not only does God save you, but He saves you to the uttermost. And not only does His grace save you, but He makes you His friend. Gives you, he gives you the power to please Him and a, the ability to obey Him. And in Him you've overcome this world. Our Lord, we thank You. We praise You this morning. Thank You for saving us by Your grace. I pray for those who are here that don't know You. I thank You, Lord, that You can save even them, no matter what they've done. I pray that, that those who don't know you would call out to you, that they would bow their knee now while they still can. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided the solution in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him we pray. Amen.